Thank you for joining us. And this is our first official live question and answer session with Politics in Motion. Today with Professors David Harvey and Miguel Robles Duran. Very happy that you joined us. And uh, please feel free to submit questions here on Patreon in the comments to this post um, or on the uh, Google form that's linked to in the previous Patreon post. And we have collected a number of questions and we are going to start um, by some of the questions that we have received. Um, I'm Chris Caruso. I'm also here with uh, Politics in Motion off screen. Our first question for the day is to David and Miguel. Why did you start Politics in Motion? What is the vision? And what should we expect from Politics in Motion this year? Well, I think for some time, uh, given that Taylor is doing work with you uh, to put the uh, capital class uh, online and uh, we get more than one volume to the Grand Greece and uh, many things like that. And then uh, we started to uh, work uh, through uh, to uh, develop uh, this podcast and we had a format uh, to do them. But I think that all around I did in mind that I very much would like to consolidate all of this work and uh, bring it all together. So that meant we had to create a new platform to try to consolidate all of the work uh, that uh, is being done and for advanced work with uh, uh, the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles, but also with the uh, Urban Front and very other organizations that we're working with. So this seemed an opportune moment to, uh, to do that. And, uh, we're, busy as bees right now coming to consolidate everything and I think that by the end of uh, this year anyway uh, we should have it uh, all together but Miguel do you yeah. have been very much so I hope this too yeah no uh, I mean to extend a bit what David uh, just mentioned um, it was just the right time it made sense uh, to uh, both of us uh, leave uh, the previous organization we used to publish our own podcasts in. Um, and after some putting it some thought, uh, it was just, just the right, the right thing to do. I, I mean, David and I have been working for, for some time together and also just made sense, you know, to, to just, just move, um, and start a platform that would do a little bit things distinct. Um, that what uh, the previous organization was doing. Um, and uh, we wanted to really focus on anti-capitalist discourse from uh, various sort of disciplinary perspectives or from a transdisciplinary perspective. And uh, we thought when we started this that it was going to be much easier, <laughs> but it, it is not easy. Um, uh, the previous organization we, we uh, did our podcast in, I had, I, 
we leave a staff of four or five people. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, I mean, doing these, I mean, uh, there's basically three of us uh, working on this um, with other kinds of projects uh, around has not been an easy task, but we're slowly uh, starting to launch uh, other podcasts. I and mean, we thought it was very important to introduce um, different perspectives, right, uh, into the struggles that we all uh, do in a daily life. And um, as you might have noticed, uh, we published last month uh, a podcast from Laura Rakovic, uh, which was um, already one episode is out. And that has to do more with, uh, you know, anti-capitalist uh, directions into culture and art, uh, which we thought it was a, a very good um, addendum, which is something normally is not discussed as so much into the anti-capitalist spaces which we both feel that is very relevant, very important, right? I mean, how culture is produced and reproduced today. Um, and uh, and then very soon, uh, we're just finishing actually the introduction for um, for the next uh, podcast, which is called, going to be called Great Diggers Unite, uh, which uh, basically unites uh, three wonderful voices on the Poor People's Campaign, uh, which we're going to be discussing about poor people's struggles. Um, and it's three people uh, talking together. So that has been quite a challenge to produce uh, technically. And then soon we will have also Raquel Ronik, uh, from, director from Brazil, having a, a, a series that it's called, um, remind me of the uh, Urban Warfare, sorry, it's called Urban Warfare, which is uh, the title of her book uh, with Verso. Um, and she's going to do a series of interviews with uh, people working uh, in the streets uh, in struggles. And uh, that we have an idea to launch somewhere in February. Um, and uh, soon also Andy Merrifield is going to be recording, going to be here with us uh, doing another uh, podcast, Adventures in the Dialectic. Um, and uh, Clara Matei uh, doing also her uh, podcast. We still haven't figured out the, the title, but we're basically slowly uh, trying to push um, the, the podcast, hopefully in the coming months. But the first one that you will um, uh, be uh, you know, notified on uh, would be the Grave Diggers Unite, which is the next one. And then, you know, soon and so on, I mean, we're going to be moving up, producing more. But I guess the, the whole sort of ambition of this project is just to have uh, the consolidation of um, of not usually exclusive ideas, but like interdependent ideas on the ways that we are facing um, and going anti-capitalist today. And you will notice from Abigail said that we have a great interest in being international and getting away from the idea that the only politics that matters is that in the United States. And we're really, I think, uh, going to use this opportunity because I'm we are in charge of our own platform uh, to extend it in all sorts of uh, ways, and uh, you know, and there's an inference and possibilities there. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 I think it's a very, very important part of what we want to do. Yeah. And of course, it's very important to think about how this platform could later mutate into some kind of um, uh, other things that is not just uh, the, the podcast, but. Uh, perhaps in organizing a series of congresses or events or something here and there, uh, or participating in other forms. I mean, we also are planning to um, to start some kind of web store, but we thought that it was going to be easy. That's more complicated than we thought. 
Uh, and we have other ideas because, of course, we we, we need a lot of uh, more support because we're doing this pretty much on a voluntary basis. But um, uh, but this is, you know, a very important project, we thought. Uh, and we didn't see anything like this in the in the web space. And I think that's also very important to mention. Um, uh, obviously, we have a lot of friends that are doing here things and there, right? But uh, something that consolidates, you know, a discourse in a more transdisciplinary perspective um, uh, with an international view is something we thought it was needed. And so, well, thank you very much for being, um, you know, the first supporters of this project. I think it's just fantastic that we are doing this right now. Wonderful. Thank you, guys. Uh, so our next question is from Robin. It's a long question. I'm going to paraphrase a bit. Um, they're wondering about the status of uh, chattel slavery in the United States from Marx's point of view. Um, but of course, Marx talked about the twice free workers and the kind of development of capitalism in Europe. But um, Robin points out that some recent work, such as Caitlin Rosenthal's Accounting for Slavery, makes the case that slavery as practiced in the United States operated as a distinctly capitalist institution. Um, economic historians, Marx included, have often described the evolution of capital and industrialization through examples taken from British and American textile manufacturing. What these examples often omit is the fact that much of the 19th century cotton, a major raw material for such manufacturing, was produced by slave labor in the American South. I worry that treating slavery as an institution somehow prior to capitalism leads us to ignore and erase the many practical ways that slavery contributed to and supported the development of our contemporary capitalist system. What sense do you make all of, of all of this? Do you regard the chattel slavery of the American South as something pre-capitalist? Or would such an institution be part of one of capitalism's many local varieties and why? Marx was often looking to try to develop what you might call a pure theory of capital accumulation. And in so doing, he made, I think, uh, very clear that um, uh, the value theory that he was working with and therefore the whole dynamic of accumulation uh, rested upon wage labor. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, there's no other kind of labor going on, but Matt, if you want to understand the dynamics of a capitalist mode of production in its pure form, then you do so with uh, wage labor. Now, there's a very interesting moment in uh, Volume 1 of Capital when Marx comments about Aristotle and says, uh, you know, Aristotle was uh, very smart in uh, what, what he saw and was a lot of uh, exchange going on in the market. And uh, market exchange meant that there was a principle of equality uh, involved in the market economy. And so this idea of uh, equality and market exchange was, for Aristotle, terribly important. But Marx then goes on to say, unfortunately, Aristotle couldn't develop a labor theory of value in the way that Marx had done, uh, because uh, Aristotle lived in a society, Greece, uh, where labor was slave labor. 
Now, by that, I think we mean to say that in terms of analysis, what Marx does is to exclude all other forms of uh, labor, domestic labor as well as, as slave labor and, and chattel serfdom and all of those kinds of things, that Marx excludes them from the analysis for purposes of analyzing what is a pure little mode of uh, capitalist mode of production about. Now, if you go to look historically, of course, you'll all see all many, you know, multiple different labor systems. I mean, and, and even today, there are examples that come very close to the slave labor and things like the Thai fishing industry and so on. And there's a lot of trafficking in human uh, flesh and, and so on. So these things are going on, and they uh, often uh, complement or supplement. Uh, the way things are working in the wage labor. Now, right now, if we're in the United States, uh, we have a situation where wage labor and even in racial terms and gender terms, it's all wage labor. Um, and so that therefore we can actually see, try to use Marx's analysis of the, the dynamics of capitalism to understand the dynamics uh, of that system without necessarily dealing in any detail with the nature of uh, slave labor in a particular society at a particular time. So it's important to do that because when Marx is uh, interested in, in, in talking about the laws of motion of capital, what he needs to do is to be able to do it in its, in its pure form and most easily manipulable form. And Marx uses this concept of a uh, uh, what he calls a concrete abstraction, uh, that uh, when you look at the uh, market exchange, you'll see the exchange of uh, uh, widgets for uh, wadgets and things like that. Uh, but you then generalize and say the general character of market exchange is this, and it contains the principle of equality, and you therefore leads Marx to kind of say, well, what other principles does it uh, actually uh, advocate? Well, you get the whole principles of liberalism, Locke, and all the rest of it, which uh, are the kinds of ideologies and institutional arrangements which you would expect in a in market form of capitalism. But when the market form of capitalism becomes an industrial form of capitalism, when you get the, the production and profit through surplus labor extraction, then we see the you know different in a different world. So nobody's gonna say that somehow or other slave labor or chattel labor or or domestic labor and so on uh, is irrelevant to the history of capitalism. None of this foundational we find them where you find them. Maybe you have to understand uh, exactly how they were working in that particular place and time. But if you wish to understand some of the real dynamics of well, why capital runs into such massive crises that it has done over the last few years, then you need a, a different kind of theoretical posture so that I couldn't get from, say, chattel slavery to explaining what happened in 2007, 2008 in financial markets. I can get to 2007 and 2008 uh, in what happened there uh, by appeal to Marx's general uh, laws of motion of capital, uh, and that is why we separate in some ways our thinking about 
the the capitalist mode of production as a as a theoretical entity uh, and, de- and differentiate it from what I would call a, a capitalist social formation, where all kinds of different things are going on, including perpetuation in her own time of forms of slavery uh, and forms of uh, um, constrained labor and, and all the rest of it. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, so we got a live question from our Patreon, Caleb. Uh, Caleb is an organizing member in an 80-person socialist organization in Norman, Oklahoma. They've been relying on you both for a lot of theorization of their situation. I want to thank you. And they have a question for Miguel. Wondering if you have heard of Strong Town. Do you have an opinion about their vision of urbanism? What does it mean? Yeah, thank you very much, Caleb. I, I believe that we uh, also exchanged uh, either one or two emails, uh, so, so it's very nice that you're here. Um, it's uh, yeah, I think it's it's quite a relevant question. Although I'm always scared of saying these things, especially now live, and they're going to be in YouTube. But the hell with it. I'm just going to say these things. Yes, I'm I'm very familiar with strong towns. Um, and, uh, I'm also very familiar with other kinds of market driven, um, uh, uh, or market based, uh, sort of urbanist or sort of fads or fashions. Right. Um, I consider strong towns to be uh, part of that group, perhaps the, the, the biggest of all these groups, and perhaps the one that started the whole craze was. Uh, somewhere in the 1970s, uh, it's hard to pinpoint when it started or where, because uh, Europe, Europe also had a lot to do with this, was the, um, the emergence of what is now called new urbanism. And uh, new urbanism was a thing that, uh, that you know, was very much promoted here in the U.S., but also in the European continent um, as, um, as a reaction against modernist planning, right? I mean, like zonings and these big slab buildings and, uh, you know, the uh, roads and being in, in a reticule and uh, all kinds of other things that, that one refers to as modernist planning being the thing. There were a bunch of planners, architects, designers, urbanists, uh, economists, etc., that started to go back into the idea, hey, perhaps we did it wrong, we have to go into an idea of what the old cities used to be, which are walking. And walkability has always been one of the main principles. So all these movements, right? But uh, and there they have all these uh, issues that they inserted into them, which was like let's make it sustainable, let's make it. So all of these um, sort of topics that they referred to, like compactness, sustainability, um, you know, social cohesion, and so on, are are words that they have been using. Um, I mean, these kind of social movements, uh, well, uh, urban movements, uh, for some time. Right? I would argue this is the, the beginning of the 20th century. Now, what um, we don't get to see much in these kind of movements is any strong position, and which is a bit uh, taken over by the ideas of strong towns, but there's not really a strong position um, a, on the market forces. I mean, and actually what we both believe that shapes uh, the cities, right? The urbanization, as I've said many times, it's a, it's a mirror of capital. It's like, it's a, if capital is an abstraction, urbanization is its material body, right? Uh, it's concreteness, concreteness of how it produces space. 
And therefore, I find it always uh, surprising that um, it lacks um, a very strong position you know, to dictate that no matter how much you want to think about benevolent forms of developing organization, whether you want to make it more pedestrian or more bicycles or more, you know, these old-fashionable things that happen to the more public spaces and plazas and so forth and so on, at the very heart of all of these, it's still um, a very um, unjust um, and completely exploitative system that is producing all kinds of fractures and differences and ruptures in our social, you know, milieu. And so uh, what I take about all of these movements is uh, whether, yes, they promote things that we all might agree on. I mean, let's do green stuff. Yes, let's have you know, better houses in terms of, um, you know, energy, whatever, sustainability, uh, pedestrian stuff, let's build more compact stuff. They have touched issues on taxes and uh, all kinds of other things. But fundamentally, uh, these are market-driven. I mean, the, the, the people that funded uh, or that started Strong Towns, it's a person that has managed to make quite a big business out of it. Nothing, you know, like, okay, fine, made a big business out of it. But it clearly is catering to those that uh, were disillusioned or that emerged, the generation that emerged from the previous generation that was very much into new urbanism. And there's many examples of new urbanism in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that are quite disastrous, you know, social environment, et cetera. Some of them not as bad like the ones that Prince Charles, you know, did in England, which are still used as examples of possibilities. Uh, but all of them, again, have at the center the idea that the city is produced by market forces and then you have to actually regulate them or control them, right? Which is a very different position that we take as we imagine, like, what the city should be. I don't know if you want to say No, really, except uh, one of the things I actually did like about King Charles's Anbury was the fact that you really could not tell from the outside what was social housing and what was private housing. And I thought that was that's the kind of nice nice thing in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, no, they, they these people had it's it's very interesting because they had a lot of like reactionary uh it's it's, it's a reactionary movement on all the postmodern sort of planners and people working in cities. Um they yeah, they, they had some interesting ideas that there, it's not that those ideas are the you can easily detach them from the capitalist production, right? I mean, they're they're nice ideas of representation, like having greenways for bicycles. Well, I can definitely think about them in a very different system than is not in the capitalist system, right? And so these are elements that that uh, I in my opinion need to be rethought, right? I mean, there needs to be much more critical visions on how can we rethink these in non in a non-capitalist formation. Yeah. So thank you, Caleb. Excellent. Okay, we have another live question. Uh Kevin from Ottawa. Uh thanks to Chris Miguel and all for this great project. Longtime anti-capitalist chronicles listener and viewer. Uh, my question is, having followed all of David's lectures on capital side one and two with some of three and Gretersky, I'd like to know whether he will ever return to volume three for its own series of updated treatment and include the controversial chapters on competition or equalization of the profit rate. I would certainly be very interested if this were ever considered. 
certainly appreciated all of the previous theories then together. I considered some of that in uh, actually the volume two uh, capital because uh, I felt that uh, volume two was very much about the technical relations between uh, the market processes, uh, the commodity production, and all the rest of it. And so what I did was uh, then I took all the chapters from volume three and added them into chapter two. So there is some of volume three uh, already taken account of. But I did not take on uh, uh, forward rate of profit and some of the earlier stuff. Uh, and uh, I really wanted uh, uh, at a certain point to try to do that. But, uh, you know, one thing goes into another. And I got lost for, for, for actually a few years uh, on the Grimbarisa project. And now that's finished. And I guess I could turn myself to uh, the remaining chapters of Volume 3. But in a sense, some of those area features are already being covered. I have a text source which is out up there on the web in um, various various forms in which I talk about foreign rate of profit. I talk about uh, the equalization of the rate of profit. I talk about the mass of profit. I talk about the metabolic relation to nature and social reproduction all those kinds of things. So I am trying to put them together uh, in a consolidated form so you get a better picture of uh, what I call the totality of a capitalist mode of production. And, uh, so it, 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 it's sort of like in, uh, it's in progress. Uh, and actually, it's kind of quite difficult because um, I've been working a little bit recently on the question of the geopolitics of capital and what's the relationship between the national interest and the class interest and how do we understand the role of nationalism in relationship to uh, capital accumulation and so on. And that's a very difficult thing to do, it turns out. I mean, everybody's had a crack at it. And Lenin did, you know, Stalin did, the Rosa Luxemburg did, and of course it's gone on since then. But it seems to me that something is foundationally missing out of how to integrate uh, the fact that uh, the current wars which are going on can only be talked about in terms of nationalism and, and, and uh, the nation state and, and uh, that all the kind of consolidated uh, uh, cultural configurations and linguistic so there's a whole bunch of things going on there. And then you kind of say exactly what is the relationship of this to capital accumulation and the roles of motion of capital. And to be honest, I don't have a very I don't have a very good answer to that right now. But that's something I'm working on. And in that in some ways I think is more important to me right now than filling in the very black spots, if you like, as you know, what was going on in volume three of capital. Fair enough. Uh, I would love to see that as well. <laughs> Just putting that out there. Um, we got a, a previously submitted question from Liz uh, for Miguel. Uh, Miguel, can you explain your work with the Urban Front and the Shape of Cities to Come Institute? Okay, thank you very much, Liz, for that question. Um, yes. Um, 
how to explain all of these projects. Um, see, one of the biggest contradictions uh, I personally have had all my life is uh, having a foot inside academia and a foot out. And um, I, I feel uh, most of the times that I'm more attracted or there's like a, a magnet uh, that, that is drawing me towards uh, having a foot out of academia. And what, what this means is that there's always like this desire, this need to act in, uh, in the environment we occupy, which we, as academics, we tend to always follow the idea that we're in this like bubble, right? Nothing really you know, goes out of it, or it's just like a regurgitation with the same people, etc. And and certainly in the uh, urban um, fields, uh, this is in academia a very common uh, thing. You either have the practitioners, or you have the people that are inside, and each of them occupy you know their own spaces. So uh, this has always been a contradiction, and for many years, um, uh, I've uh, structured together with other uh, three colleagues. An organization was called Cohabitation Strategies. This is when I was living in the Netherlands. And um, and we had this organization for about 13 years. We call it a cooperative for social spatial development. And the whole point of that, uh, when we created this organization was in 2008, uh, right at the financial crisis when, when Lehman Brothers collapsed, it was to create uh, some kind of agency that we would advocate for um, initiatives uh, that came from the grassroots to counter neoliberal development. Specifically at that period, it was a lot of displacement that was going on in Europe for these mass urban regeneration projects. But also there was uh, a lot of racism, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of that, of course. Um, and there was um, all kinds of shenanigans and financial operations that were going on at a uh, political level, which had to do with the emergence of a mortgage market, which the Netherlands didn't have, very consolidated. Um, also, a lot of changes that the European Union, you know, had brought or were bringing there. And so we had this organization, and we developed projects with uh, with basically foundations and with uh, all kinds of other uh, governments and so on. Uh, quite a number of projects on it. And then at some point, uh, when David and I were working, uh, co-directing this, uh, this research center in Ecuador, uh, which uh, Rafael Correa, you know, uh, asked for, right? Um, we were working on a, 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 a project there, which is a research center called CENEDET, uh, Centro de Estudios Nacionales para el Derecho al Territorio, something like National Center for the Right to the Territory, something like that, a study center. And um, when we uh, became quite enamored with the possibility that it has to be very close in touch with uh, top-level government officials in order to change um, a bit the, the policies and the dynamics and the propositions they were creating so that it would support the grassroots. So what it was different from cohabitation strategies, the previous organization, is that we were really focused from grassroots up, so the bottom-up type of thing. And, uh, and the Urban Front became also a possibility of a new project, right? Uh, being uh, quite disillusioned by the successes or uh, failures of uh, a lot of the projects we did with the cohabitation strategies had to do with many of these projects were amazing. You had the people to actually support them, the organization, everything was there. But what was not there were the policies and the normatives and the political support necessary for these grassroots to actually take over and take charge and become powerful, right? 
And so we both realized that it was very important to um, to see how we can create a certain kind of intelligence uh, into the ears of a specific uh, high-level politicians. Now, adding to that, you know, the joke that we always made is like, well, normally that's what McKinsey and all of these consultancies do, right? Um, and so we at the beginning started to joke with the idea that Urban Front was going to be an organization that uh, that was the McKinsey of the left. But I think we're we're way beyond that idea. We're more like a, a confederated network of knowledges, right, that support different projects around around the world. At the moment, I'm just going to mention one big project that we're developing, which is with the city of Mexico, Mexico City. We're supporting their planning agency and different uh, governmental agencies to develop the what would be the first uh, rent stabilization uh, law uh, or you know program, uh, perhaps in Latin America, right? Uh, for sure in Mexico, you know, that's the case. And we have other sort of projects that we're working in different venues, and we're composed of 22 or 23 people, people from different disciplines with uh, from all over the world. We have Members that are from Palestine, from 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 Spain, from Sudan, from uh, Uruguay, from Ecuador, etc. Right, uh, and so um, yeah, we're trying to build uh, that kind of intelligence agency that could support left or progressive leaning governments, and that would be uh, uh, you know that organization. If you want to add something else, would be on front. Now, except to say that the contradictions are not necessarily bad. I think actually the contradiction you mentioned, which is one foot in and one foot out of academia, that's always been terribly important to me. And I have to say that I've learned most of my good ideas come from outside academia, not the inside. But so nevertheless, working inside is terribly important because there's the sort of line from inside to policymakers and thinkers and so on. And so so it's a it's a it's a great position. Yeah, I just being so I don't I don't know. She did just somehow rather a big burden that something rather than half in and half out. Uh, I like I very much like that, uh, that position. Yeah, no, and and in and to answer just very fastly, because I know we're taking a lot of time on these on your question about the shape of cities to come, I think it, it basically is the same contradiction, right? I mean, in the shape of cities to come, they the it's an institute that we just started uh, a couple of friends uh we are six people uh, that started this organization and uh, here in New York City, which is basically um, an institute for advanced urban activism, whatever that might seem. The whole idea was to bring together a lot of uh, very seasoned uh, urban activists from any field that you can think of, from you know gender rights, from housing, from environmental issues, from migration, etc., and, um, and put them together in different seminars to see what kind of new projects emerge out of the coming together of a lot of these different activist fragments, right? Um, and so if any of you are interested in applying, there's going to be a new, a new round uh, coming very soon. But the idea of starting this is that we have been fortunate that our academic institutions have supported us as doing this in and out work. I would argue specifically mine. Um, a, a, it has been a, a good place to be in because they appreciate a lot of the work I do outside as a relevant work, you know, to bring into academia. Uh, but we all have seen, I mean, David made a, a, a podcast not long ago 
about sort of what academia is becoming under neoliberalism and how knowledge has been completely taken over by, you know, administrative burdens and staffing and all kinds of other things that have diminished the idea of the possibility of creating new knowledge. So that has always been at the curiosity. It was like, how can you create or develop organizations that support the production of, of what we think is the newest kind of knowledge possible, right? Or different kind of knowledge that is not coming from those sealed uh, spaces. And so the, the Shape of Cities to Come Institute is that attempt. I'm sorry. Very interesting. Okay, next question is for David from our Patreon supporter, Victor. David, what do you think of the idea that Russia and China are capitalist imperialist powers like the USA and so should be opposed just like U.S. imperialism? Yeah, this is uh, an obviously um, very contemporary concern. And I'd first like to differentiate between what I would call uh, imperialist powers and imperialist practices. Now, I look at what China is doing with the Belt and Road and what it's done in Africa and so on. And obviously, it has trade and has does does the, I don't know, push things a little bit like any trading organization would do. Um, and uh, but I would say that uh, China has some practices which are, are rather close, too close, if you like, to uh, uh, imperialist practices. But I wouldn't call China necessarily an imperialist power. Uh, any more than I would call, uh, say, Singapore, where you would find also some imperialist practices. It's an imperialist power. So when I start to think about the imperialist power structures, I, I, I think of something which is rather different than simply saying, well, every, every state has external relations and probably engages in some shady uh, practices that are somewhere or other uh, which are rather similar to those which uh, imperialist powers. But with imperialist powers, what you're doing, dealing with is a deep-rooted structures of decision-making. And if you look at the whole process, in, in some ways, I uh, follow uh, this colleague I had in Jill Hopkins, uh, Giovanni Arrighi, and I want to talk about hegemony. Uh, rather than an imperialism and hegemonic practices uh, are very much located in the United States. I mean, the United States essentially ran the capitalist world system uh, from 1945 onwards. Recently, we've seen it being challenged uh, by uh, various other configurations, some degree, a little bit of the European Union. And the European Union has a whole set of imperialist practices around the world, which are absolutely abhorrent and, and need to be challenged. So rather than kind of saying, well, okay, we have to deal with imperialist powers. Yes, imperialist powers exist. Uh, they control things like uh, the International Monetary Fund, uh, the Bank of International Settlements. And they have uh, the size and the power to be able to uh, corrupt 
uh, local movements whenever they want to. So there is an imperialist power system there, which you know, where the United States is hegemonic. I don't see uh, China actually at the center of um, being hegemonic within the power system. It may like to be, and there are certain practices which are moving in that way. So I would rather kind of uh, say, let's 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 deal with imperialist-like kinds of practices, um, which, uh, if you look at, uh, say, the uh, mining, copper mining in, in Africa, you find some of the largest corporations are Chinese and Indian. But you've got to say China and India are imperialist powers. The answer is no, they're not. I think, but nevertheless, they are in certain ways engaging at certain points in imperialist practices. So I'd rather sort of approach the question that way rather than kind of uh, saying, okay, I have this block where I, I say they're imperialist and these are not imperialist and I, I, and I drop one in one box, one in another. That's a kind of sociological way of thinking rather than have a relational way of thinking when I prefer the relational way, which says, Watch out for all those imperialist practices. Excellent. Uh, we have a question for Miguel from our Patreon supporter, Theo. Uh, this is kind of long, but I'm going to do my best with it. Uh, in listening to your recent Cities After episode, Profiting from the Homeless, I was wondering how much money New York City spends on homeless shelters and what else that money could be used for to be more effective. I've heard the statistic that there are about five abandoned houses for every unhoused person in the U.S. Can you talk about that contradiction? In New York City, the right to shelter is being undone, in part by pitting migrants against homeless folks already present in the city. How is that playing out, and what are the policy solutions to address the right to shelter? The problem of homelessness in U.S. big cities is becoming a key part of extremist right-wing talking point, scaring people, talking about the need for more criminalization and more police, especially in cities that are democratically controlled. What is to be done in the face of this? A neoliberal Democrat's failure to address homelessness seems to be paving the way to an extremist fascist reaction. Yeah, no, thank you very much for this question. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, great. Very, very serious stuff. Uh, I, I grabbed my phone because um, I looked at a, I just made a note, I think two or three days ago, which I read the newspaper. I don't remember which one must have been the Times or something like that, that the current cost of uh, one person a day in a migrant shelter. Um, and homeless shelters, because now it's just a mess here. Um, it, it's $400 a day. That's uh, paid mostly with tax money, right? Now, let me repeat this, $400 a day, right? Um, many good four-star hotels in New York City are less than $400 a day. Okay, certainly uh, really good housing here um, is much less than $400 a day, right? Now, a, what this tells you is that uh, it's going to, the, the price of being, keeping people in these shelters, which are, you know, have prisons, have, uh, you know, just, I guess, basic survival sort of shelters, 
um, they it's going to continue to go up. Uh, the, the, the cost is going to continue to go up because that's what it's been doing. And the reason that it's been doing this, it's because it's a great business. And there's a lot of politicians involved in the business of homelessness, right? Homelessness is something that uh, capitalism creates as a business, something to profit from as it does from everything else, right? And therefore, it's very impossible, in my view, to think about uh, looking at ways to resolve or to, to address the homeless uh, situation uh, without not doing a very thorough analysis on how the capitalist structures are functioning around, you know, what, how do they respond to this, right? Now, New York City could save so much money if it would just decide to build housing, right? And just you know, offer this housing to uh, people that have that have been struggling, right, for whatever reason, right, uh, from uh, coming from a different country or here because they just had an unfortunate uh, to be homeless, and um, and then you know we would be saving, we could put more money into the New York Public Library, which of course uh, Eric Adams, our current mayor, uh, defunded very recently. Uh, schools are always in struggle, right? The public school system is always being defunded continuously. And again, you ask the reason why, because there is a great business behind defunding. And there's also a great business behind funding the police, right? Which is another very important, sort of like a counterparty to the homeless sort of industry that I'm talking about. Police, right? Is uh, you know a fundamental you know other coin of this. Um, uh, look around, and we're going to be mentioning names, uh, sorry numbers, but look around how much um, uh, security guard uh, uh, gets paid for, which is uh, for these uh, policing in this case shelters, right? Um, and uh, they earn perhaps more, certainly more than I do. Uh, I mean, David perhaps has more senior salary, but closer to it, right? And, um, and this is something that it's appalling to understand, but uh, I find it even more appalling that the majority of people that talk about homelessness does not talk about this. Uh, the, the, the first direction to get uh, serious on this is to dismantle all of these companies that are profiting from the suffering of people and from keeping them in kind of pseudo jails, you know, cages and treating them the way they do, right? And uh, if we don't advocate for the dismantling of that industry, no matter what we propose, it's not going to work because that industry will continue to hoard, as all capitalist industries do, and continue to claim more and uh, remove more from our tax dollars into that. So that's the way you know I see it, and it's very, very unfortunate that this is happening. I would argue it's not only the case in the United States, although the United States certainly has uh, its its huge, you know, these, but these industries exist all over, right? I've seen them in many places, including in Europe, which, uh, you know, a lot of people get surprised about this. Homelessness um, is, is just part of this phase of capital that we're in, where we are finding that, yeah, suffering of people makes money. And so let's, let's do it. Yeah. Bravo. Uh, a related question for David from Fatih. David, you have said that neoliberalism cannot continue without authoritarianism. When you look out on not just the domestic politics of the U.S., but globally, 
How worried are you about the rise of fascism today? Um, well, the answer is I'm very worried about it, though I think we need to be a little careful about the language because fascism has very specific sets of connotations. We're moving more to, in many cases, autocracy. Uh, we're moving very much towards authoritarianism. Um, and, and actually, that authoritarianism was there from the very get-go in terms of the neoliberal turn. Because the neoliberal turn was very much about uh, the imposition of austerity. And austerity was not austerity on the military budgets and all the rest of it. It was the austerity was about taking away many of the rights that people have as citizens and transferring them over to finding the, uh, their needs met by the NGO complex and so on. So it's all along, it's been uh, very much uh, a state-led uh, authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. and you needed that in order to sort of get the get get the the, the world the world working in the neo neoliberal way. Um, right now, of course, what we're beginning to see are these these turns towards uh, fascism, and fascism comes about because. And um, in, in take the case of uh, Donald Trump, who's a sort of crypto-fascist, in my view, uh, and, and, and he, he doesn't really have a plan. He just is going to be used by big capital uh, to actually implement the things that they want. And it's like no accident, I think, that what we're beginning to see is the revelation of the billionaires who are going around the Supreme Court, the billionaires who are going around everything. Big, big money, uh, and they kind of figure they can use uh, Trump uh, to further their agenda. Now, this is one of the big fallacies about history. Uh, people thought they could use Hitler. People thought they could use uh, uh, use Mussolini. Uh, people thought they could use Franco. No, at a certain point, they suddenly find that they are being used and they are actually the ones who get dominated. And there are some extraordinary examples and histories of this. Uh, for example, uh, in, these, in these early years, Mussolini was very much supported by uh, the Zionists. And it was only sort of very late in, in uh, the 1930s when suddenly Mussolini turned to uh, sort of the anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic anti uh, ways of doing. So these are the sorts of things which seem to me to be, in, in, we have to watch out for. Uh, now, part of the problem here, however, is not that I'm so worried about fascism, which I, which I, which I am, is that I'm very worried about um, the capacity for, Interregional conflict uh, and wars, and we've got now two wars on under the plate, and nobody knows exactly how they're going to be ended or pulled together. And there are end games of those wars, which are uh, obviously the turn to kind of nuclear 
and across the Bursley. So there are all sorts of things that it doesn't take a fascist to set off a nuclear bomb. And it wasn't as if uh, Truman was a fascist uh, after all. So one, that's one thing. The other thing is that I'm extremely concerned with this, uh, uh, with this whole question of democracy. Um, there's a kind of a, a trope around which says that, that we're losing democracy. I think we lost democracy a long time ago. Uh, we have a certain kind of democracy, and it's a democracy of big money power, and that's it. This, you know, this goes down to everything, to small meetings. I mean, I remember being in Baltimore at a community meeting in which everybody was opposed to a certain developmental project. Uh, the city council members retired and the next week came back and said they were going to do the project because guess who had gotten to them? So this is, this is, this is the kind of the, the problem that we need to do. We need strong, very, very strong uh, communal organizations, big organizations which you know, manage to transcend the silo forms on um, separate separate things dealing with education, housing, the has it come out a holistic approach and that to try and to actually create a new set of institutional structures which actually uh, listen to people and at the same time not very listen but do things that meet people's real needs as opposed meeting the needs of capital or the needs of the billionaires or just the needs of uh, the sort of an elite uh, uh, legal legal, uh, military class. I want to to, um, extend a bit on what David uh, mentioned because it it talks uh, or refers to his book on neoliberalism and other things that he has said. One of the things that we have found out as we um, have been uh, working or approaching people in sort of high positions in power um, is that uh, that thing that David argues that, you know, democracy has been lost a long time, it, it's much more apparent every time we work, you know, at this level. Um, first of all, you have all of the supranational organizations, institutions, and companies that, that operate at a world trade organization level, that uh, at an IMF level, at an OECD level, which, um, uh, or at the NAFTA level or the European Union level, which in most cases are not levels that we have any say on. I mean, and, and they dictate a lot of the decisions that these politicians that we think are the ones making decisions, um, uh, you know, do. And so, um, it's, it's also a, a very hidden phase that neoliberalism has brought, right, in this authoritarianism that makes us believe that, that electing politicians, uh, that the politician is still able to do a lot of things when in reality many of the things are decided by uh, a lot of these capitalist uh, billionaire class and interests that are around. Um, yeah, so... All right. Uh, this is our last question that we're going to wrap up um, from Patreon supporter Benjamin. Professor Harvey, you have debated both Dylan Riley in the New Left Review as well as Michael Roberts on the significance of Marx's ideas on the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. 
My take on your position is that you're not saying that the tendency of the rate of profit to fall isn't important, but rather two things. One, it is one source of capitalist crisis, but not the only source. And two, you're against the idea of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall as an inevitable, quote, breakdown theory of capitalism's demise that taken to an extreme denies the agency of the working class and the necessity of waging class struggle to end capitalism. Is this fair? Our short answer is yes, pretty much. Um, and I don't really don't have too much more to say about that, except that I always encourage people to go back and read uh, those chapters in Volume 3 of Capital and uh, the, the, the notebook version, which is just one single chapter, where Marx talks about falling rate of profit. And it's a very good argument. That's a good thing. And, it, it's, uh, and it's obviously significant because capital is constantly operating under the coercive laws of competition, which means that it's actually constantly trying to improve the productivity of labor. And because it does that, it means it will tend to need less and less labor, less and less labor. But that is a contradiction with the fact that labor is, of course, the source of value and so surplus value. So you're actually destroying uh, the, the goose that uh, lays the golden eggs by by you know, all of that technological change. And that's one of the great things I like about Marx. I mean, Marx is a stunning that individual capitalists operating in their own self-interest do things which actually threaten the perpetuation of the class. But earlier in, in, in Volume 1 of Capital, Marx has a chapter on rate and mass of value, which he points out that actually the most important thing is the mass of value. I mean, capitalists are interested in the mass because it's the mass that gives them the power. Uh, if you have a high rate and a low mass, and you're up against somebody who has a huge mass and a low rate, who wins? And and why do we say, we don't say that the most important country in the world economically is the country with the highest rate of profit. We say the most important country is the one that has the largest mass, i.e. the United States. So the United States rests on the mass. So I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned about we should actually be dealing a lot more with the question of the rising mass, because it's the rising mass which takes us from an economy of, in 1950 of about $9 trillion to about $90 trillion today. And you kind of go for 9 to $90 trillion. That's a huge in growing mass. And, and then the question arises, what are we going to do with that mass? Uh, and if it continues to expand in the, that rate, and we're talking about 900 trillion dollars in another 50 years, uh, what, how is that going to work? So I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned that people who talk about the falling rate are correct in talking about its importance, and, and it's a good I see some of the data they've collected has been very helpful. But I want to see a lot of data collected on the consequences of the rising mass. Because the rising mass means that mass production means mass consumption. The more mass consumption there is, the more kind of detritus there is, the more waste there is, the more pressure there is on on, on uh, climate change and environment and sociality and all the rest of it. 
So I, I, my, my objection to a lot of the argument about the falling rate is not that the, the falling rate is wrong. No, it's right. It's beautifully right. Uh, but it actually then talked about, you have to talk about the other side of the, the contradiction, which is the rising mass, which compensates for the falling rate. Thank you for clarifying. Very interesting. Um, and I guess just any closing thoughts you have, um, and we want to thank our Patreon supporters for allowing us to make all this possible. I think it would be great if people, if they have ideas, just email into us and say, you know, and when there are certain things, uh, I, I do a podcast and I think it's going to be important, but it falls flat. And then I do one, which I don't think much of, and suddenly everyone got very excited. So. Again, it's this business of one foot in and one foot out. I got my foot inside of academia, so with feet outside of there. I'm looking for good ideas. So, so, so if you can send them in, and actually, I think the spirit of what we want to do with the uh, platform is that we we want it to be open and to all sorts of ideas and, and, and consider uh, possibilities of. In a, in a in a collective way, yeah. No, I would I would I would also close on that. And I mean, first of all, I mean, lastly, and uh, thank you very much for your support. Um, uh, it really means a lot uh, to have your support. Um, uh, it's it's yeah, it's just, it's just like without it, it's just like not possible. And and that's the reason, you know, after the struggles, the first struggles of you know, lifting politics in motion somehow there i mean we still don't have the well we'll, we're gonna get there um uh, putting a lot of emphasis on well-produced you know material media material and so forth um we really want to get more into the patreon space and make that space something that we could have discussions so on and we of course rely on you right that uh, right now you all are in this space and uh, and it's very very important that um that you make it as lively as you want. And uh, we're going to be sure to, you know, follow up more and more and more as we get better doing this, right? Because this is just beginning now. Um, and so thank you again. And I guess we see you. This was very fun. Like, yeah, yeah, it's all very fun. Um, uh, please send your, you know, forward any questions that you want for the next uh, Q&A. We're going to try to do these if we can, perhaps on a monthly basis. Uh, but um, you'll get notified when the next one comes out. And um, yeah, thank you again. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for me.